Good morning, everybody. Happy New Year. I was um, so grateful for the invitation from Joe to come and speak with you this morning and just share some thoughts on the passage that we're going to be looking at, which is John 1, 35 to 51. And specifically, Joe asked me to share some thoughts on calling. What does it mean to be called to be a disciple of Jesus? So that's sort of the individual calling, right? What does it mean for each of us to be called to follow Jesus? And then collectively, what does it mean for us to be called collectively to follow Jesus, to be the church? And so that's going to be our primary focus for the next few minutes. We're going to dive into this passage of Scripture. Now, when Joe invited me, we had a very almost comical back and forth email. I said, Joe, are you sure you have the right Steve Bailey? <clears throat> I know you're asking me. I know you saw me at Ironman fill in for Pat Goodman, and Ironman is just a great men's ministry. Um, and I appreciate the very ni- nice things he had to share with me afterwards, but um, I'm not an ordained minister. Uh, I didn't go to Bible college. I don't have an MDiv. I'm, I'm not sure I'm the guy you want up in your pulpit. I'm a lawyer by profession and training, and I've been following the Lord for a while, but do you really want me to come and talk about calling? And Joe said, you're the perfect guy. I want you to come and talk about calling because we have a congregation full of people who don't have MDivs and aren't professional ministers, and they need to hear from somebody else who is following the Lord about what that looks like in their life, and then together we can wrestle with this passage. So Here's where I draw my comfort. God promises that his word won't go forth and return empty. That if we preach his word, if we get into his word, if we speak his word, that he's going to accomplish something through it. And I'm relying on God's promise. I'm relying that if together we take a look at John 1, 35 to 51, that when we leave here, today, after wrestling with this passage a little bit, and we ask ourselves some good questions about what does this mean in my life, and what does it mean for New Hope as a church, that will be better for having spent a few minutes together. So with that in mind, um, would you just join me in in prayer? Lord God, I just, uh, I confess that uh, it is humbling to stand before you and before your people, and to be asked to speak a word about your word. And so I will hew closely to your words, Lord, and I will rely on your Holy Spirit uh, to um, have them delivered in a way and to be said uh, just what needs to be heard, whether that's someone in the room or that's someone watching online, Lord. I pray and am trusting that you'll do the work in their heart. And I thank you for the opportunity to be used by you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So... What I'd like to do is just start with the passage itself. It's a fairly long passage, but I want to read through it once because we're going to camp out here this morning. I want to pick it up and get the words a little closer to my eyes here. So this is John 1.35. The next day again, John was standing with his two disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
He said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and he said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, behold an Israelite, behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is God's word. So, Jesus is calling some of his first disciples. This is John's telling of Jesus calling his first disciples. As we'll discuss in just a few minutes, this isn't the only place in any of the four Gospels that there's an account of Jesus calling disciples. But before we get into how does Jesus call and what, how does that transpire and what is he actually calling them to, I think we should take a big step back and ask, why is Jesus calling disciples? What's Jesus doing? Like, why call disciples? It's a good question to wrestle with. I don't know that the text comes right out and tells us. In fact, I think you actually have to read the entire Gospel of John to figure out in the end why Jesus was calling people to follow him. But in the beginning, it's not unusual in that day for rabbis, for teachers, to call disciples, or actually for, te- for disciples to ask if they, the rabbi if they can follow them. And so Jesus is continuing a practice not uncommon in the day, but I think he's doing it for a very different purpose. Now, we have the advantage of living a couple thousand years later and having read all the Gospels. We know the full story. We know that why Jesus came to earth. We know that Jesus will eventually give his life for the very people that he's calling. But at the time, they don't know any of that. They think that they're being called by a rabbi to follow him. And yet Jesus has in mind New Hope Church. Let me say that again. Jesus calls Andrew and Philip 
and Peter and Nathaniel. Because down the road, he knows there's going to be a New Hope Church and a Grace Fellowship Church and all the churches dotted around the city and across the state and around the country and around the world. In fact, that's ultimately the plan. Jesus has come because he's the king. He's the true king. He's the Messiah. He is God's son. He's come back to claim what's his. But the journey doesn't start and end with Jesus. It starts, Jesus is starting something, and he's eventually going to call these people to be his church. And yet, they don't know this. It's funny how the actual call goes down, isn't it? When you look back at this passage, first of all, John is standing with people who are following John. And Jesus walks by. Now, this isn't the first time that John has said something about Jesus. You all would have read, I think, last Sunday about Jesus being baptized and John referring to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And again, John refers to Jesus as the Lamb of God, and he points him out. And all of a sudden, John's followers, two of them anyways, take off and start to follow Jesus. They've at least been paying attention to John, right? Because John's been super clear. I'm not the one. I'm preparing the way for the one. And then all of a sudden, the one comes on the scene, and John says, that's him. And two of the John's followers, I'm going to assume that it's Andrew and Philip at this point. It's Andrew at the very least, but probably Philip as well. They start following Jesus. It's almost comical. They start following him, but it's, all, it's like they haven't told him they're following him. I almost get the feeling like Jesus is walking and they're kind of a little ways behind because Jesus turns around and basically says, what do you want? What do you want? And they don't say, we want to follow you or John told us to follow you. They ask him a really funny question, at least funny to us. Where are you staying? Wow. They ask him where. But you know what? I think this is all getting to this issue that the world tells us that when we talk about calling, the world talks about calling in terms of what we do, our occupation, the things we busy ourselves with. But I think calling for Jesus and for his disciples is about who they are. I think it's an identity issue. And the question, where are you staying, is really sort of like if I meet someone and I say, hey, where'd you go to high school? Or where did you go to college? Like, tell me something about yourself. Reveal something about yourself to me. It's a question that invites relationship. It's a question that invites us to ask about identity. Who is Jesus? So I mentioned that this isn't the only place in the Gospels where Jesus calls some folks. And we know that in this passage in John, the first things after Andrew and Philip spend the day with Jesus, the first thing they do, it has to be an awesome day, right? Because they run home and they find people that they love and that are important to them. Andrew finds Peter. And he says, I found the Messiah. And when Philip is told to follow, he runs off and finds Nathanael and tells Nathanael, 
we found the one that all the law and the prophets are talking about. In both cases, they, ex- they get a come and see invitation from Jesus. They come and see. They like what they see. And they immediately turn around and start, come and see. Come and see this guy. Because that, that's how invitations work. When I have something, when I come across something that's really cool, I might not necessarily run up to someone and say, come and see. I might shoot them a text about it, though. Or I might share an article. Or I might invite them to something. We, we like to share those things that we're getting excited about and called into. And that's what Andrew and Philip are doing. Now, Philip actually goes off and calls Nathaniel, and we have this whole little conversation between Jesus and Nathaniel, and we can't get into all of it. And if at some point you're just more interested, I would you know, do a little bit of a dive into this whole conversation about angels ascending and descending on, G- on the Son of Man, and it's an allusion to Jacob and Jacob's ladder, and this whole thing about an Israelite and who there's no deceit, and there's lots of great stuff there. But for our purposes, Jesus looks at Nathaniel and he asks him to follow him after Nathaniel is already sort of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? But I'll come and see. I'll come and see because my brother wants me to come and see, and I'll check it out. And in that first encounter, it's so unique that Jesus just has a way of meeting people where they are and asking the right questions and seeing them for who they are. And now Nathaniel, he's going to follow too. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the calling of disciples. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all actually don't record this encounter so much where some of John's disciples go off and follow Jesus. They actually just sort of talk about Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee and seeing some fishermen and calling them, and they drop their nets. And I don't know that this doesn't precede that, that there isn't a long period like we think of sometimes being called into something as being a one and done, an invitation's extended, we either accept it or reject it. But I think that what Jesus, again, if calling is not about what we're doing, but about who we are, then calling is going to be a very long process. It's going to be multi-layered and multifaceted. Come and see is followed up with follow me. Come and see is pretty non-threatening. Come and see is just check it out, no obligation. Follow me, wow, that's a little deeper. Now I have to make some decisions. Is this guy trustworthy? Is he safe? Can I follow him? Should I follow him? And then the following becomes more and more intense over the next three years. But that's because Jesus is interested in shaping his disciples' identity. He's, he's willing, he's in the process of giving them a new identity. It's not about what they're going to do. It's about who they're becoming in him. So hopefully, I have you somewhat your curiosity somewhat peaked to look at calling, not as what are we supposed to do, but who are we supposed to become. Think about what the disciples, what all of the gospel stories end up doing. 
If you take the four Gospels, the vast majority of the four Gospels basically tell the story of Jesus doing life with his disciples. And the various people they encounter and all the different things they go through. But the main actor, the main moving actor in most of that is Jesus, right? What are the disciples doing? What do disciples do? You know what? For a lot of it, they're present. They're with. The job of a disciple following a rabbi is to be with, to draw close, to watch, to learn. And Jesus is helping them learn how to follow him in all of these various encounters. But not to give them a to-do list, not to say, well, you have to do this and you have to do that. And by the way, I'm going away and we're going to have a church. And, you know, church is really complicated, so here's our to-do list. What he's doing is creating a community and shaping their character so that when he does leave and they're empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're going to be the kind of people who have the kind of integrity and the kind of character to create and carry on the work that Jesus wants them to do. So how does that apply to us? I mean, we we don't walk with Jesus the way the disciples did. We have a relationship with the Lord. We can learn about what the Lord did, but we we don't break bread in the same way. We don't take naps on boats, we don't cross lakes, we don't see people healed, we, we don't get chased out of town, we don't, all of those things, right? But it's important that we know those things because eventually, just like the disciples who become the church and their job is what? At the end of the day, what is Jesus? He finally gives them a job. After he shaped their character, He finally lets them in on the plan. It happens way down in Matthew 28. He commissions them, right? We all know the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. That's the part... I think sometimes we give short shrift to. And and believe me, I'm not downplaying the need for us to make disciples, to have people come to a decision point, to surrender their lives to the Lord. But I wonder if at times we don't have them surrender their lives and then we move on to the next person without necessarily having done all we could to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Now, for Jewish people back in that day, 613 laws. They take Moses' Ten Commandments and they blow this out into 613 laws. Now, while Jesus is doing his earthly ministry, he actually narrows it down into love God and love your neighbor. He said, all the laws and the prophets hang on those two commands. But in the upper room discourse that Joe was talking about that you're going to get to in John at Lent, Jesus takes even the two commandments and he brings it down to one. And he's super clear. He says, a new command I have for you. A new command. You're to love one another as I have loved you. 
That's the job description of a disciple. We're to love one another as we've been loved by Jesus. So here's something really neat. We hear that and we think cross, right? Like that was not Jesus' ultimate example of his love for us was on the cross. We think Jesus laid down his life for us. We need to lay down our lives for other people. We go to the cross. When the disciples heard that, Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. He was telling them that he was going to the cross, but he hadn't gone to the cross. I think that Joe, when we were talking, mentioned that at some point in time, he may have mentioned this book to you um, in a previous message. It's a book by Andy Stanley. It's called Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. Five Questions to Help You Determine Your Next Move. It's a super helpful book if you have kids or young people in your lives, or quite frankly, you just want a really good, solid grid as you approach important decisions that you need to make. And he gives you five whole questions. I'm not going to go through the whole book, but one of the questions at the end is based on this new command that Jesus gives. And he describes it this way. He describes that upper room discourse where Jesus gives that new command this way. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Jesus instructs his follower, instructed his followers to do unto one another as he had done unto them. This was extraordinarily personal for the men seated around the table because this is up at the Last Supper. This is part of the upper room discourse. When Christians read, as I have loved you, we think cross, but they didn't. They thought about the last three years. Perhaps each man in the room was transported back to a particular moment in time when Jesus had loved them particularly well. He could have called them out one by one. Matthew, remember what you were up to when the first time we met? Yes, sir, I was working for Rome from home. I was, well, I was a thief. Good people kept their distance. Remember what I said to you on that afternoon? Yes, sir. You invited me to follow you. Nobody had ever done that before. Well, nobody of repute. Exactly, Matthew. Extend the same grace to everyone you meet for the rest of your life as I have loved you. He could have worked his way around the table one by one, love as I have loved you. Extend the same grace and forgiveness I extended to you to everyone you meet. And he could have added, and gentlemen, if you think you've seen, seen me love, tighten your sandals, you ain't seen nothing yet. Little did they know that on the following day, he would put on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away because he would give his life away. So how has Jesus loved you well? Where has Jesus met you in your hour of need? How has Jesus changed your life? We can't go back and eat and drink and watch lepers be healed, doesn't mean Jesus hasn't been active in our lives. We have a story to tell. Disciples are witnesses. I love that as a lawyer, as a trial lawyer, 
witnesses' jobs were to be someplace, see something important, and then tell other people about it. And the motivation for doing all of that is because we've been loved so completely that we're now going to turn around and love other people as we've been loved. So I would just want to end by sharing a personal example of this. Before I came to know the Lord, um, when I was a little boy, actually, uh, the first time I knew I wanted to be a lawyer, the first time I felt a calling to, to the law, was actually around this time of year. I was probably six or seven years old, and I woke up one night. It had to be maybe a week or two before Christmas. Um, and I found my mom watching Miracle on 34th Street, that old movie with Natalie Wood, where Santa Claus is put on trial by the state of New York, and it's going to spoil Christmas because Santa Claus is on trial. And, and there's a hero in the story, an attorney of all things, named Mr. Gailey. How close is that to Steve Bailey? Now I'm really feeling called, right? And Mr. Gailey saves the day by some neat courtroom theatrics where he gets the post office to deliver all the dead letters sent to Santa to the courtroom because the judge is really looking for a way not to hold this poor guy um, basically in contempt and put him in an insane asylum right before Christmas. And he gets the post office to recognize that this man is Santa Claus and so the New York State, they're going to recognize Santa Claus and the day is saved. And I thought, wow, that's what lawyers do. I want to do that. But you know, as much as I was drawn to the story by the neat way that it was told and how it unfolded and the courtroom drama of it all, and I thought, how cool is that? There was also, deeply embedded in that story, was this idea that there was an injustice that this good man was going to be locked away because he was Santa Claus. And that wrong had to be righted. And somewhere deep in my core, I have a very sort of high sense of justice. It is part of the calling that God has used to help me carry out his will to bring heaven to earth. You know, when Jesus teaches us to pray and he says, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, like, He's saying, that's you, Steve. So figure it out. I've loved you well. Now love others well. Bring earth, bring heaven to earth. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So before I was waiting for like the magic finger in the sky when I was in college, what career should I take? What path? Which way should I go? But now I know that we share as followers of Jesus a common calling to be disciples who make disciples all undergirded and driven by the love of a Savior who's loved us well. Right now, as we speak, there's a group of men who are engaged in moving a friend of mine. So let me tell you that story very briefly to wrap up my remarks. Three and a half, four years ago, a friend named Dennis Funk, was on his way for the first time ever 
to a men's ministry event at Grace Fellowship Church called Iron Men. And Dennis rode a motorcycle, drove a motorcycle. He also lived in northern Baltimore County. And as fate would have it, as he came to that Iron Men meeting, he came around a bend in the road, and there was a car in his lane. And he had to basically fly off the side of the road. He tried to jump the guardrail, and Dennis was paralyzed. And for the last three and a half years, he's laid in a nursing home bed, paralyzed. One of the fellows who also attend Ironman, Matt Pavla, who's also a lawyer, happened to be talking about this at one of our meetings and shared Dennis's story. And it was shortly after Dennis had been injured. And Dennis was just up the way at Kernan Hospital in rehabilitation. And Matt said, he's not doing well. He's really struggling. He could really use a friend. He could really use someone to visit. And as he was saying that, I just felt the Lord putting it on my heart. Steve, that's you. Now, I, don't know, I didn't know Dennis before that. Never met him. Didn't know his wife. Didn't know his kids. Didn't, didn't know anything about him. And honestly, I came up with a ton of excuses why I was not the right person to go see Dennis. How busy I was and all the things I had to do. And yet, my job in Towson actually took me to Catonsville twice a month. I literally had to drive the Beltway almost past Kernan Hospital twice a month. And so... One day I just decided, Lord, you're not going to let me go. You keep putting this on my heart. You keep bringing this gentleman to mind. I'm going to be obedient. You've loved me. I've been lonely. I've needed a friend. Now I need to be that friend. You see where this is going? So I pull into the Kernan. Visitor parking way the heck across a big field. I'm walking in and I'm just thinking, I just... What am I going to say to this guy? He's completely paralyzed. I've never met him. I don't know him. You know, he's, he's talking about wishing he were not here and all that kind of stuff. Okay, Lord, I'm going to be faithful. You'll give me the words. Get there. This is pre-pandemic. I don't know if he had MRSA, what was going on, but I had to put on full gown, mask, gloves, just to go in and see him. Now I'm feeling even more barriers between us. And I walk in the room, and he is literally laid out like completely flat, covered in a sheet, almost looking like a corpse. So I walk over and I get up by the head of the bed and I just introduce myself. I'm like, hey, Dennis, I'm Steve Bailey. We have a mutual friend, Matt Pavela. He told me about what happened and I just wanted to come by and be with you. And that began a three and a half year friendship. Now, I can't tell you in the last three and a half years he have we moved from Kernan up to a nursing home about a mile from my office, which made it very convenient for me. And I've seen Dennis fairly regularly. But it's not just me. Because then we started to share Dennis's story with other disciples, other Jesus followers. And guess what? When we were doing our Iron Men sessions, just like you tape and live stream services like this, we were too. And we thought, we can bring the... Dennis can't come to us necessarily, but we can bring the service to Dennis. And then one of the tables, because we sit in tables at Ironman, one of the tables adopted Dennis, and we started just, they started sending people to the nursing home to be with Dennis while he was watching the live stream while the rest of us were in the room on Monday night. 
And for the last three and a half years, we've been fighting to get dentists something called community waiver benefits. That's when someone in a nursing home is given some of the benefits to be able to go live independently in the community. And as we speak right now, there's a group of men who are moving Dennis's belongings into his apartment, his new apartment in Cockeysville. And sometime in the next week to 10 days, Dennis is going to leave the nursing home behind, hopefully for good, and start a new life in independent living. Isn't that a beautiful story? I walked into that room not knowing what I, what I was going to find, and what I found was a brother in Christ, a husband, a father of three, somebody with a lot left to give and a lot of life left to live. And, and today, he's taken the next step in that chapter. Here's another neat thing. One of Dennis's best friends doesn't know the Lord, but he loves Dennis, and he's actually spearheading the move. But now, this morning, he's surrounded by all these crazy guys who love Jesus, and he can't understand why guys who don't know Dennis nearly as well as he does are putting aside Sunday morning and giving three or four hours and showing up with pickup trucks and helping move his stuff into an apartment for a guy they really don't know. And we've already had an opportunity, Dan and I, to talk, and I've already invited him to Iron Men. And I don't know if he'll come to Iron Men, but if he doesn't, that's okay, because I don't have to bring someone to Iron Men to hang out with them and to love them well. So I get a chance to love Dennis, and I get a chance to be inspired by Dennis, and I get the chance to meet Dennis's friends who are lost, and we all get to put this in a big mix, and the Lord just says, Steve, remember how much I've loved you. Now go and do the same. And if you can, pull some other guys around you. Guess what? We'll call it the church. They're not in church today. They are the church. And there's nothing wrong with being in church. Being in church is a good thing. Don't get me wrong. But this morning, they actually decided, oh, wow, God is calling us to something more than just coming to church this happened to be the day it worked out. So would you now just pray with me as we conclude? I just want to pray for Dennis. I want to pray for his friend Dan. And I want to pray for all of us as we continue to walk as Jesus shows us. Lord God, right now I just pray your blessing over Dennis Funk. I pray that you'd fill his nursing room right now with, this, with your Holy Spirit, that, that he would sense that even now, people who don't know him well but have heard a little bit of his story and been inspired by it are lifting him in prayer before you, Lord. I pray that as he moves to independent living and he's challenged that you'll continue to help him in his rehabilitation, that he would regain more use of his arms and legs and that he would just have a... a the ability to just serve you more and more as he becomes a participating member of the community. And I pray for his friend, Dan Packey, who has to be wondering who are these crazy guys that have showed up. I pray, Lord, that you'd give us opportunity to love Dan well, that he wouldn't be our project, that he'd be somebody who just needs to know you. And whether we have the opportunity to lead him into a relationship or we just become spades that dig up a little bit of 
hard ground and somebody else will come and plant seed and water and reap a harvest. We don't know, Lord, but we're going to be faithful and we're going to love him well. And now I pray for the congregants here at New Hope Church. I pray for everybody that is here in the room or watching online or couldn't join us either venue. I pray, Lord, that as, you, as they are led through this Gospel of John by Pastor Joe, that it would be a life-changing experience that they would show up Easter, different men, women, and children, because they have invested time to dig deep in your word and to apply it to their lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.